Bruce Larson, UPC's senior pastor from 1980 to 1990, passed away on December 15th. In honor of him, we're posting several of his sermons from his years at UPC. A beloved pastor and friend, Reverend Larson impacted countless lives, and his legacy of books and sermons will continue to share his wisdom and love. Here with me now the beginning of Exodus chapter 1. Read along, if you will. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the offspring of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the descendants of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's our text for the morning. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war befall us, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and uh, Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they made the people of Israel serve with rigor and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work, they made them serve with rigor. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and are delivered before the midwife comes to them. That's called situational ethics. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let us pray. O oh Lord, what an incredible chronicle you have allowed by your Spirit to come to us, to know the beginnings of your dream for all of your people. Bless us now as we think about your mighty acts and who you are now in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, Exodus is a book about deliverance, and you'll be hearing, if you're here, regularly 20 sermons this year throughout the year covering much of Exodus. Deliverance, that's the theme, because the, the book of Hebrews says in a hundred different ways your God, my God, is a God who delivers us. He delivers us from those things that would destroy us. It's the story of the making of a nation who are then given a land and who are meant to save the world as they did because the Messiah is a Jew who came from these very beginnings, our Lord Jesus. 
Now, Exodus is the central event of the Old Testament, very much like the cross is the central event of the New Testament. And uh, the, the, our, our Jewish sisters and brothers who are divided theologically and socially and in terms of politics are united that whatever kind of a Jew you are, the great central celebration of God in your life as a people is in Exodus. So this is, the, like for us, the cross and the resurrection, this is the center for the Jew. Center for us, too, of the Old Testament. It's the story of Moses' life. It covers 430 years, the, the, the span from uh, of time. And Exodus is the center of the faith for all Jews. And as we saw this morning from 1 Corinthians uh, 10 that Ray read for us, the New Testament is rooted and grounded in the very concepts that uh, God allowed and did here in Exodus. Now, the date's uncertain. Was it 1580 B.C., the Exodus, or 1220, or somewhere in between? Scholars are not sure. But the message of Exodus is that God is active in the affairs of people. The politics, the life, your life and mine, God is not an absent God. God intervenes in the uh, life of the world. That's the message. God is active. And um, like Genesis, which we studied two years ago, last year, remember, it was uh, uh, in the Gospels mostly, but like Genesis, the God that you see in the face of Jesus Christ, whose table we will come to next week at Worldwide Communion, that same God is the same God of Exodus that you see in Jesus. They're one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God. Now, there are some parallels between Exodus and the New Testament. Don't make too much of this, but as I read this, I was impressed and began to keep notes. Let me just read them for you. Forty years in the wilderness, the Jews. Jesus was 40 days in the desert. The law was given the great, and we'll speak much about the law, the gift of God's law on Mount Sinai. The Sermon on the Mount came from Jesus. Pharaoh kills all the male babies. King Herod, at Jesus' time when he was born, says, kill all the Hebrew babies. There are 12 tribes. Jesus chose 12 disciples. The Passover, the great central event of the Exodus, is the beginning and the roots of our communion service, the Lord's Supper, next Sunday. Passing through the Red Sea, certain death, but they survived, is like baptism we did this morning. You're buried in Christ in baptism, you're dead, you're raised. If anyone be in Christ, they're a new creation. The serpent is lifted up when they have a plague, and it says this bronze serpent, the caduceus of modern medicine, Anyone who looks and believes will be spared from this plague, and they were. And Jesus said later, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. The Passover lamb is the center of the Passover, and Jesus says, I am the Lamb of God slain for you. The pillar of cloud that led the Hebrews is the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. The manna they ate day by day in a barren desert, no food, and day by day they gather this hoarfrost kind of stuff on the rocks and they survive for 40 years. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. If you eat me, I'll never hunger again. Uh, the water from the rock, when they were thirsty, Christ says, I'm the living water, the burning bush, and there was fire at Pentecost. I mean, the parallels are amazing. God says, I'm the same. I come in different ways, but it's the same. I'm the same God. Now, the amazing thing is, that I think incidentally too, is the Exodus centers not in theology, but the center of the Old Testament is an event. God did something. Now, there are many speculations about that, and there are books of 
comments on theology, the New Testament is proclamation of an event. God was in Christ reconciling the word. Old Testament, New Testament, center in God, actively incarnate, doing something in the world. We have an event faith, not a vague conceptual faith. And I think it's fascinating to realize that uh, the, in, in, in secular history, the time when Egypt was the number one power in the world was when the Hebrews were living in Egypt. When they left, uh, Egypt became a second-class power. The strange thing of God's blessing on the Jews continues then to today. Now, what does this all mean for us? For us, I think it means that there is no safe place. That's our text for this morning. Think about this. God is a delivering God, but the place he delivers to you is not a place you can stand for too long. God, our refuge is in God, the deliverer, not in his deliverance, though he does deliver. Now, think about this. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land know that in the best of times, it's a dry, barren land. But can you imagine being there in a drought when a desert is in drought, much like Ethiopia today? And so, like much of the world then, uh, when Joseph was in Egypt, People are perishing as they are in Ethiopia. And God allows them to come down because of Joseph to live in this lush, fertile Nile Valley. And for those 12 tribes to come down, it must be something like an Ethiopian today from the north coming to Puget Sound and seeing Lake Washington and green and waterfalls and rivers. They could not believe it. And there they are now delivered from death and drought to a place that very soon becomes uninhabitable to them for many reasons. So we find that. And uh, the text is that after they're there, they're delivered from the drought. They are unremembered by the Pharaoh 400 years later. Sounds like some of our corporate takeovers. You work for a firm for 10, 20, 30 years and somebody else buys it. New management comes in and all your long hours, all your long sacrifice count for nothing. You know, you're unremembered. And you're, you're the new person on the block, though you've been there for years. So the new pharaoh says, who are these people? They're a threat. And by that time, we assume there were almost three million Hebrews in Egypt. In 400 years, those 12 tribes became possibly three million people. Well, what did pharaoh do? First, there were public works. And they built the pyramids and storehouses and so on, which was not unusual. Because farmers then, and most people were farmers, could only work six months a year. When the, when the Nile overflowed, there was arable land, they planted, they harvested, the Nile went back, and for six months there was no work. So the Pharaoh said, if you, if you work for me, I'll feed you. So for the price of a meal, he got millions of people to work for him to build these projects, and the Hebrews were among them. But even though with that kind of persecution, uh, they are prospering. So then the king says to the midwives, listen, you're working for me now, you Hebrew midwives, kill the boys, just kind of put your thumb over their uh, breathing pipe and tell the mother that they were stillborn. And uh, why did he do that and not just have him killed? Because like so many public officials and the rest of us, he wanted to save face. He wanted to appear just, to have his way and appear just. Well, of course, the, the midwives did not do that. And here is the king of the most powerful land in the world who meets his match. He meets some women who, it says, feared God. And, and the greatest force in the world is one or two or three of us who fear God, who can stand in our corporate domain or our politics or our neighborhood and say, I will not do that. That is not right. And so Pharaoh is defeated by these um, midwives, and they are honored for that. Not because they lied, 
You know, this, this verse has been uh, much used by the situational ethics people, and God's not condoning lying. But God says, listen, you know, I'm, I reverence life and honor me. So they do. So then the king has another ploy. He says, well, he can't kill them because he'll lose face. He says, throw the boys into the Nile. But Nile was the greatest god of all the Egyptian gods. It was the source of all their life. As the Nile came down every year on schedule, uh, it brought fertility. So he said, now, these Hebrews don't worship our gods. We'll put them to a test. Throw their baby boys into our god Nile. And if he wants, they can live. And if not, they'll die. You see, again, how religion has been used to hide the acts of, of kings and, and peasants alike. Well, of course, the story is that they, uh, the women, uh, the, 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 this, this is what happens. So the place of deliverance becomes a place of intolerance, an intolerable place, a place of horror. And that's our topic for the morning. There is no, no safe place. God does deliver us as he did them from the drought and from the famine. But when they come to the place of deliverance, they can't stay there because there is only death there. You and I need deliverance today. That's why Exodus is so relevant to your life and to mine all the time. And we need deliverance from our deliverances. Now, I'm sorry that the the uh, the uh, crest for the Presbyterian Church adopted temporarily when we united two years ago and I was a delegate to that uh, General Assembly. The temporary for two-year crest was a Celtic cross with the words in Latin, reformed and always being reformed. Present tense and, and, and past tense and present tense. The idea being God is reforming his church, but lest you stand on the place where he has reformed us, he keeps on reforming. You can't stand on the place where you've been reformed, delivered, liberated. You've got to give God that because that will become a place of death for us. So the church is reformed and being reformed because God cares about the church. So as in life, there's no free lunch. Our blessings will undo us. God is the end of our life, not the means. He is not one we come and bring our praise and our prayers and say, God, help me. Because when he does help you, the very help he gives you will be your undoing and mine. The place of deliverance will become a place of persecution and a place of death. He says, don't place your hope in my deliverance. I will deliver you, but I am the center. I am the one in whom you are meant to live your life. Now, think about this. You're jobless. We prayed this morning. Martin, let us in prayer for somebody who's job. Many of us this morning, I'm sure, are jobless. And God wants you to work. And you pray. And God gives you a job. And then what happens? Your job can become the source of anxiety, the cannonball in your stomach. You go to a counselor and say, my job is killing me. Why? I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of that. My boss is unfair. Somebody wants my job. Somebody has come who doesn't know all the years I've given. A new pharaoh is in the business, doesn't know how much I've done for this firm. Or you are lonely and single. You say, Lord, you've made me to share my life with somebody in marriage, and I can't find him or her. God says, i got just the person in mind. Don't despair. God delivers you from loneliness and singleness, and you get married, and your troubles just begin. God gave you a good gift, but he gave you somebody fallible and somebody human. And you love this person, but then at one point that you hear that person say to you, you remember that thing you did 10, 15, 20 years ago? I've never forgotten it, and I'll never forgive you. You say, but think of all that I've done in the meantime. It doesn't matter, and you live in an unresolved situation. And marriage becomes not really a safe place, a blessing, 
but not a safe place if that is your security. Or you think about your uh, poverty. A lot of us grew up in poverty, and most of the world today is in poverty. God doesn't like poverty. You say, God, help me to have enough to pay my bills and eat and take care of my family. And what happens is, as you begin to acquire, you begin to have more fears and more anxieties. And Henri now, and you know our Harvard uh, faculty member, Roman Catholic priest, brilliant author and, and simple saint, says about when he has been living in South America among the poorest of the poor, the amazing thing is, he said, the poor and the oppressed have very little fear. There's more fear in America that has so much. Why? Well, once you get, you worry. You've got to put walls around it and barbed wire and build nuclear armies. Who's going to take it away from you? If you don't have much, you're not afraid. So with the blessing of having enough, which is good, comes also the other side of it, of fear that mounts. In sickness, who wants to be sick? But you get well, and then you become a health nut, and you got a jog on schedule, and eat berries and nuts and granola, and the first thing you worship, your body, and that becomes the center, and that's bad. Or hunger. Who wants to be hungry? You know, we're feeding much of the world now, trying to, but now our problem is we're a nation of fatties. And, uh, like suppose your doctor said to you, as one said to me, Lars, let me put it to you this way. He said, uh, you're an addict, and your grocer is a pusher. And suddenly we worship having enough food, and that is a bad thing. Uh, or we, we think about the, the skills that we, we teach in our educational system. Listen to what Norman Cousins, not speaking about health now, Norman Cousins writes, one of our great commentators. We are turning out young men and women who are superbly trained but poorly educated. They are a how-to generation, less concerned with the nature of things uh, than with the working of things. They are beautifully skilled, but intellectually underdeveloped. They know everything that is to be known about the functional requirements of their trade, but very little about the human situation that serves as the context for their work. You see, there again, we can be brilliant scientists and, and engineers, but unless we understand something about how people work, it's not going to go. Or privilege. It's good to, be, to have dignity. You aspire to being important, and then you begin to fly around here and there. You're in demand, and that's good. Uh, you've got a skill people need. And if you read in Time magazine recently, it says that how many famous people who fly around at the request of others have a phobia of flying. You know who those are? Andre Previn, the musician. Um, Joanne Woodward, the brilliant actress. Bob Newhart, the comedian. Jackie Gleason. Even Ronald Reagan. And they interviewed our president when he was flying on Air Force One. Well, Mr. President, you've overcome your fear of flying, haven't you? He said, this is a quote, overcome it. I'm holding this plane up by sheer willpower. <laughs> so now you're important and you've got to fly. You say, oh, I can't stay. You see, wherever God delivers you, the place will become like Egypt. And there's no safe place. So what is the good news? Let me tell you the good news. God is a deliverer. He acts in history. He wants to get you a job, your belly full. He wants to give you dignity and love. He cares about you and me, about our church, about our city, about our land, about the world. God is active and we can expect deliverance. But the good news is there's no safe place. Every place we're delivered to as a church, as a nation, as an individual, as a family, is a potential pitfall. A trap where there's no safe place because God has intended this. He said, I don't intend you to wallow around in Egypt, wherever your Egypt is. I'll put you in Egypt, but then don't forget your security is in me. We have a nation, a church here full of peacemakers, as we all should be. Some say peace without justice is immoral. 
We need strength and more arms, nuclear arms. Peacemakers, yes. Some say nuclear war is madness. Just lay them down. And uh, that becomes a kind of peacemaking. And now we're at the negotiating table. But I'm saying more nukes, no nukes, or a treaty with Russia. Our security is not in that, even though we must press for what you and I think is right. We may differ, but our security is not in treaties, more nukes, no nukes. Our security is only in God himself who holds the world in his hands, and we must know that. There is no... The Quakers during the, the frontier times of our country never carried a gun, never had a lock on their door, and no Indians or bandits ever are known to have killed the Quaker. They went out saying, God will take care of us. I don't recommend that, but that's what the Quakers did. Here's David and Goliath. Here's the strongest, biggest military force in the world. There's a huge man, you know, and talk about Star Wars. One, one pebble came out of the sky, hit him on the head, and he's dead from, Goliath, from David. God said, it's not in arms. I will fight for my people. And, of course, the Assyrians were slain in great numbers as they tried to conquer uh, Israel at Jerusalem. Well, the good news is God delivers. Pray and expect for your nation, for the world, for you, for our church. But our security is not in the place he delivers us to. It will become untenable, untenable for us. God says, your only security is in me. And you and I are a royal priesthood. We are co-deliverers with God. We are those who are there to remind people, yes, God delivers, but your security is not in the good thing he's done for you. It's in him, not the gift, but the giver. Heard a story this week I want to share with you about this. Man said, it's about time to his wife that I got a raise. I'm grossly underpaid. So I'm going to ask the boss today for a raise. He comes close to his boss, terrified. He gets the raise. Comes home that night. His wife has a gorgeous table laid out, candles, flowers. The market at our house of an ultimate meal is cloth, napkins. The whole thing is there. And beside his, and, and, and all the food he loves, and beside his place, a card saying, darling, I knew you'd get the raise. I am so proud of you. I hope this meal and this table will tell you how much I love you. He's thrilled. They eat the meal. They're clearing off the table. As she walks into the kitchen, a card falls out of her apron pocket. The card said, Darling, uh, I know you're disappointed. You and I both know that you deserve that raise, but it doesn't matter. I love you, and I hope this table will tell you that. What she's saying is, a raise is good, no raise is bearable, but don't forget, life is more than raises and no raises. Live your life in God. And our text, I mean, our, our closing hymn sings to that. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place. Number 88.